Reading comes from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and can be found on page, starting on page 835 in most of your Bibles. At this moment, I'd like to invite Pastor Jeff to read the scripture for us today. Good morning to you. My name is Pastor Jeff. I'm the interim pastor while Crossbridge is looking for a new uh, lead pastor, and it's my joy and delight to be with you. I want to remind you that I am praying for you. I'm trying to set aside an hour every week to pray for you. And this is my starting my third week, and so far I've accomplished that. I've prayed for this church and for you people by name uh, for an hour this past week. I prayed for the Alex and Lois Coe family. I prayed for the small group of Jane and Chen and about 50 or 60 kids that are in that small group. And uh, today I'm having lunch with Liz and Paul and their kids. So if you want to be prayed for, let me know. I'd love to pray for you by name. I have a little book here. I'm putting my prayer requests, your prayer requests uh, in here. All right, we are in First Thessalonians. Pastor David is going to bring the message in just a minute. And I wanted to give you a little bit of background on First Thessalonians so we, you know, we know what's going on here. Let's talk about where Thessalonica is located. Okay, it is on the eastern portion of the Mediterranean. Can you see the boot of Italy and over on the far west is Spain? Thessalonica is over on the other side. Let me zero in. I'm going to magnify that portion. There's the Mediterranean. You see the boot of Italy. And Thessalonica is over here in Greece, northern Greece. It's still there today. It's called Thessaloniki today. And it's one of those ancient cities where the ruins and the ancientness uh, blends together with the modern world. Let's zero in on that area. Okay, I'm going to show you Greece, northern Greece. And you see the city of Thessaloniki right there. The Apostle Paul had come from Philippi, which is just to the east, and he was going into Greece, and he came to this major seaport uh, city there in northern Greece. That's his journey. He went to a little town called Berea afterwards, then down to Athens and uh, Corinth. You can read about this in Acts chapter 16 and chapter 17. We're not sure how long he was in Thessalonica. Not very long. It could have been as short as three weeks. It's probably longer than that, but it sort of sounds like just three weeks in Thessalonica. Probably he was there a few months, and he won some people to Christ, and they turned from idols, and they started worshiping and living for God, and they obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and he planted a church. Then... Oh, uh, here's uh, some of those ancient ruins that you can see in the city. And as I say, uh, they are mingled and mixed in with the uh, modern world also. So here's an actual photograph that was taken of the Apostle Paul from that time. You see him in the synagogue teaching. He was there just for a few weeks or a few months, and he started a church. Then what happened? Acts chapter 17. 
the Jews were jealous and they stirred up dissension and there was a, almost sort of a riot. This is, what, this is what happened when the Apostle Paul went around. And the disciples sent him away. They said, get out of here. We're doing okay. We'll be, we'll be all right. You get out of here. So he left and went somewhere else. And he was so worried about them. He had been there only a few weeks. So he wrote them this letter to see how they were doing, to remind them of some of the things that he had taught them while he was there. And so, before Pastor David brings today's uh, uh, lesson, let's remind ourselves of what we heard last week. This is the beginning, chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How did the Apostle Paul know that? He, I know that he has chosen you. How do, what are the marks? What are the signs? This is what we covered last week. Do you remember the marks of true conversion? Do you remember how to tell if you're really a believer? What's the first mark? Come on, I know it was a long time ago. It was a whole week ago. He says, I know that God has chosen you. How did he know? First mark. The gospel comes to you with power. The way we talked about it last week was you have heard, really heard the gospel. Second mark, you receive the gospel with joy. You believe it. You turn from your idols to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Third mark, you start walking the long road of discipleship. You start living for Christ. That's not what saves us, but it's a mark of being saved. The gospel comes with power. You receive the gospel with joy. You enter the long road of discipleship. Chapter 1, verse 4, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And now today's reading, today's sermon will come from chapter 2. Would you please rise out of respect for the reading and authority of the word of God? Chapter 2, verse 1. Everybody stand, please. Give your attention to the word of God. 
For, uh, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, not to please you or anyone else, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and calls you into his glory. This is the word of God for Crossbridge this morning. Please be seated. Christians, and when you hear the word evangelism, I would guess that for the majority of you, words like privilege or joy aren't the first words that come to mind. Maybe more realistic would be words like apprehension or fear. I mean, it's something we know that we're supposed to do, um, but maybe we don't think we're too good at it, and so we resign ourselves to the fact that we're not that good at it, and we leave it to those who we feel are more gifted at it, or we just kind of you know, pray and hope that God drops an opportunity in our laps. Someone who's just so anxious to you know, find out who Jesus is that they'll just approach you and you know, tell you, you know, ask you, tell me who Jesus is. You know, and, and probably these feelings stem um, you know, from past experiences that we've had where, you know, where we've tried to share the gospel and things just kind of blew up in our face. I remember experiences I've had in the past where I've tried to witness to people and I've been reprimanded for trying to share the good news. I've been rejected in in more harsh tones uh, than I would prefer. And, you know, too, maybe, you know, we just kind of resign ourselves to the fact that, you know, things are different now than they were in the past. You know, people back then were more accepting of Christianity, at least in this country, um, or in the West, we could say. And we may think that there's more opposition to Christianity than there was in the past. But in actuality, that's not really true. Um, many of you 
probably have never heard the name of George Whitfield, um, but he was arguably the most famous uh, religious figure in the Western world in the 1700s. He is sometimes called the father of modern uh, evangelists, and he kind of laid the groundwork for people like D.L. Moody and Billy Graham. Uh, hopefully, uh, you youth know who Billy Graham is. Uh, he just passed away this year, I think, in, in February, so hopefully you know at least who Billy Graham is. Um, and George Whitfield, getting back to him, though, you know, was just this awesome evangelist who could draw massive crowds. He had this love of theater growing up, and he incorporated his love and talent for theater into his messages, and as such, he was able to draw crowds like no other. Um, he was a tireless worker for whom it was noted, preached at least 18,000 times over his lifetime to perhaps 10 million listeners. And, and by the way, he's also buried in actually in Newburyport. So if you go there, you could visit his gravesite at the First Presbyterian Church there. Um, he was an itinerant preacher who spoke both in England and the U.S., uh, but his ministry did not come without opposition. Uh, when preaching at one of his favorite places outside of London, which this, it was this field called, called Moorfields, it was said opponents would hurl things at him like rotten eggs and pieces of dead cats. Yes, pieces of dead cats. He has oft-repeated testimony after speaking at events at Moorfield was, I was honored with having stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cats thrown at me. You may feel that you face opposition, but I don't think any of you have had dead cats thrown at you. And as we get into our passage for this morning, as we kind of already heard from Pastor Jeff, you know, we're going to learn about some of the opposition that Paul faced in his evangelism efforts, but how it didn't damper his efforts. And as we get into our passage for this morning, understand the point of this passage is not just, you know, tough it out. You know, just, just deal with it because you're going to face opposition. But more so, it's to show us that we can be confident in our evangelism efforts and comfortable as we seek to fulfill God's role, you know, that he would have for us in this area. Um, Pastor Jeff gave a little bit more of the background of First Thessalonians, and as we'll see in a bit and learn a little more, you know, we'll see Paul exhorting his audience to follow the example that he set when he witnessed to the Thessalonians. There are several points that you know, can be made, but for the sake of time, I, as you can see from your outline and the bulletin, I just limited it to three. So what was Paul's model of evangelism? First, as we just alluded, he exhibited the courage to share in spite of opposition. He exhibited the courage to share in spite of opposition. One of the advantages, you know, the recipients of Paul's letters had back then over us is that, you know, they were familiar with events, people, places that Paul referenced. And for us, you know, we, we usually don't have any idea. And we, we find this example in the first two verses of chapter 2 when he writes, you know, you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not, with, was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. You know, the Thessalonians, they heard this and they're like, oh yeah, you know, we remember and know exactly what happened in Philippi. And most of us read it and like, 
What's, what's Philippi? What happened there? But if we did some research, you know, we can actually find out what happened in Philippi uh, in the book of Acts, as uh, Pastor Jeff referenced. So Acts 16 describes when Paul and Silas went to Philippi. And while they were there, they shared with some of the women who became believers. After that, uh, they cast out a, a demon from a female slave. And this made some people very unhappy. This caused an uproar in the city. And so Paul and Silas were arrested. They were uh, flogged. They were beaten with rods. And then they were put back in jail and, and put in stocks. But God miraculously released them from prison and in the process used this to convert the prison guard and his family. And then in Thessalonica, as Pastor Jeff Explained, Paul and Silas preached the gospel in the synagogue there. Several Jews and Gentiles believed. And this put the Jewish leaders in an uproar. And then what happened afterwards was these Jewish leaders went to this house, the house of Jason, a believer, to find Paul and Silas to, to want to drag them out of the home and, and drag them to the people. But when they didn't find them there, they grabbed Jason and the other believers who were with them. And they charged them as accomplices. And then they made Jason and his friends postpone and release them. And once they were released, Jason and his friends went to warn Paul and Silas and told them to flee the city to escape. And so they fled at night. And so this is just a small example of the persecution that Paul faced while trying to evangelize others. And we see that in spite of this, he didn't back down, but he had the courage to continue. You know, based on what happened in Philippi alone, Paul could have said, you know, this, this isn't really working. You know, let's not do this again in Thessalonica. You know, I don't really feel like getting beat up. I don't feel like getting thrown in prison again. But he wouldn't do this. Why? Well, it's because he recognized his call and his companion. He recognized his call and his companion. The first part of verse 4, on the contrary, we speak as those entrusted or speakers as approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Paul knew that God's call in his life was to be one who shared Christ with others. And then in verse 2, we also read that towards the Thessalonians, he says, with the help of God, they were able to share with them the gospel despite strong opposition. With the help of God, so Paul knew that in his quest to spread the gospel, it wasn't just him and his friends, but God was also there working in people's hearts. And what was true for Paul back then is also true for us. You know, we've been entrusted with the gospel. We know that, right? The, for those of us who are Christians, we've heard the Great Commission. You know, Matthew 28, 18 to, 19 to 20, you know, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus had commanded them. And we know that when God calls us, he doesn't leave us alone because he finishes the Great Commission by saying, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So when we go to be his witnesses, sharing the good news with the lost, we can have the confidence that we have Jesus with us. He is working behind the scenes and sometimes even in front of it to change people's hearts, to help us accomplish the task. We're called 
God is with us. So we can go forth in confidence. I like a quote that John MacArthur said. He said, you know, the mark of a great minister, in this case an evangelist, is not what little it takes to start him, but how much it takes to stop him. Courage in spite of opposition. And then the next example we see that Paul sets for us is when presenting the gospel is he made no compromise in presenting the truth. He made no compromise in presenting the truth of the gospel. You know, once again, based on what happened in Philippi, Paul could have made a decision to alter the message a bit. You know, let, let's figure out a way to word it so it may be more acceptable to people, so it won't be as offensive, so I don't get beaten up again. You know, but he wouldn't do this. Why? Two reasons. First, he wanted to preserve the integrity of the gospel. Verse 3, For we, the appeal we make does not spring from error and pure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Then in verse 5, he adds, You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Back then, you know, just like today, there were people who claimed to be a prophet of God or messenger from God. They used these titles for personal gain. There were people who were very eloquent and could speak words more to their audience's liking. But their goal, more so than to share the gospel, was to line their own pockets. It reminds me you know, of the televangelist who, who just this year asked his followers to contribute $54 million so he could purchase his fourth private jet. But Paul, he wouldn't do such a thing because he knew he was not in it for financial gain, but to uphold the truth of the gospel. You know, oftentimes when you try to evangelize the acts of service, people won't understand why you do the things you're doing. They, they think there's got to be some ulterior motive. You know, I remember the first time uh, we went to Asia uh, to teach English for the Asia short-term mission trip. You know, students didn't understand why, why we came. You know, some students asked, you know, are, are you hoping to start a school here? Are you trying to build a reputation here so you can open a school here? So some student, even this year, one student asked, why would you come to this city when you could go to a more famous city in that country and, you know, do it, receive more fame or accolades for doing it? You know, they didn't get that, you know, well, we just loved them and, and we wanted to share our lives with them. You know, we couldn't tell them necessarily that it was because of the love of God or because of the others that love of because of the love other people had for him for them that they would support us financially so we could come and offer this for free that we were able to go you know in these cases you know these these reasons people would think that, that we could compromise or that we should compromise but Paul wanted to uphold the integrity of the gospel and we find that in doing so, you know, it also leads to a curiosity which presents many opportunities to outreach. And then the second reason you can see on the screen why Paul wouldn't compromise is that he knew his aim was to please God, not people. The second part of verse 4, we are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, as we learn from Scripture, the gospel is offensive. It has people to recognize the sin in their lives. It talks about a holy God who has people to repent of their sins. It talks about the judgment of God. And the temptation for us is to avoid mentioning these things. 
I saw a funny picture yesterday where it kind of illustrates this. You know, football is, is king in Texas, right? And it's not just professional football, high school football, college football. It's a big deal. And, and rivalries are, are taken very seriously. Yesterday, UT, you know, Jen's alma mater, Pastor Jen's alma mater, the University of Texas, played TCU, Texas Christian University, at UT. But UT had to provide a space for TCU's band to play. So let me show you the space they made for them. So here's a picture of UT Stadium, 100,000 seat stadium, 100,000 plus seat stadium. Here's where they put the band. I don't know if you can see it, but it's way up on top. If you, if you see, if, from, if you look at this picture, it would be on the right, at the very top, all the way in the nosebleed section. That's where they put the band. You know, obviously, they didn't want anyone to hear the band play um, because the 100,000 people who attended the, the, the game would just drown them out. And I think that's, you know, kind of like how we, you know, view this, you know, this, this aspect of the gospel. Um, you know, we, we want to put it, you know, we want to box it in in this upper section way at the top so we don't have to, you know, so we hope people don't hear it or notice it. Or, you know, maybe we even want to put it outside of the stadium. You know, don't get me wrong, the gospel is good news. I mean, that's after all what, you know, evangelism means in the original language. You know, it talks about forgiveness and love, redemption. But for people to understand the gospel, they have to hear about sin and judgment. And the temptation is to try to sugarcoat what is said. But Paul wouldn't do this. He wouldn't compromise the truth. And we shouldn't either. But how we present the gospel is important. And that's the final point I want to talk about. In the last section of our passage, we see that Paul shared the gospel with deep care and affection, deep care and affection towards those he was trying to reach. Verse 8, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. I like that phrase. We not only shared the gospel, but our lives as well. You see, Paul knew that oftentimes trying to witness to someone is a relational process where we share a life with one another. In verse 9, Paul writes on how they worked during their time there so he wouldn't be a financial burden on the people. Most scholars envision that though Paul may have only been there for a short time, Paul and his friends probably set up a shop to make tents or to do leather work. And they could imagine that the shop was not only a place for people to come to buy goods or, or services, but it was a place that they would gather to discuss life, to share philosophies, to enjoy meals together. And that's how it should be. John Piper, I like, he, he stated that the gospel flourishes when people share their souls or their lives together. In an article I recently read, Joshua Pease likens evangelism to a swap meet. Peace was formerly a pastor at a church, but now he's working. Uh, he, he left uh, full-time ministry and is currently working as a waiter in a restaurant. And this is what he wrote. He wrote, what makes swap meets fun is that the selling process goes both ways. You can bring an, an item and exchange it for someone else's item. The process involves a mutual interest in each person's product. 
I have shared some of my spiritual journey with most of my coworkers, but this only happened after two months of me intentionally listening to their stories. I asked questions, took an interest, found out why they were working there, and made sure they knew I cared about them. I passionately believe people will not care about our stories as Christians unless we care, and I mean truly care, about their stories first. This isn't a means to an end, an evangelism sneak attack, if you will. Well, it's it's allowing someone's story to break your heart, for you to care about them and their problems, to understand their point of view, to make them feel seen and respected by you. It continues, over the past month, as I've gained trust with my coworkers, I found more and more opportunities to talk frankly about sex, relationships, addiction, abuse, and yes, Jesus. And in hearing that, I think we can all relate to the truth of what he writes. Evangelism is often a long-haul process as relationships take time to develop. The challenge for me, as I think it may be for many of you, is spending that intentional time to build relationships with those outside of God's kingdom. You know, maybe you don't think of it this way, you know, but God has intentionally brought people into your workplaces, into your schools, into your neighborhoods for you to be a witness to. Not everyone in your school or workplace, but, but I'm sure there's at least one and probably more. So I wonder if you've been asking God to show you who these people are, to point these people out to you, and if you're making time to intentionally spend with them. Now, I'm realizing, as I think about many of you, you guys spend way too much time at church or doing church-related things. You know, some of you shouldn't be involved in so many small groups or serving in 10 different ministries. That's preventing you from hanging out with unbelievers. For myself, I mean, I find that ministry can take up the majority of my time, and hanging out with those who are already Christians can take up the rest. So I need to intentionally carve out time to spend with unbelievers. And I think the same is true for many of you. And it's hard. You know, one famous pastor said, tell me how to show love without spending time, energy, or money, and I will gladly sign up. Tell me that love means sacrifice, and I become reluctant to commit myself. But you know, one surprising benefit of doing this is that you may actually find your love quotient increases. The way verse 8 is written in the original language, some scholars have concluded that when Paul went to Thessalonica, he didn't actually expect to develop such a, short love, or such a love for people in such a short time. But during his time there, he couldn't help but develop this love. You know, you may have coworkers or classmates that you are reluctant to build relationships with because you feel that you don't have so much in common, their interests or passions are different from you. But you may find that in getting to know them, a deeper love develops. I know for those who went on uh, the Asia STM this year, you know, we just spent two weeks with these students, and these students are very different from us, come from very different cultural backgrounds. Just in those two weeks, we developed this deep sense of affection, which continues to this day as we continue to keep in touch with them through social media. Now, for myself, I find that unbelievers I meet through playing sports or just hanging out at a coffee shop, 
that we are very different also in our backgrounds and thinking. You know, I've developed a deeper care for them and vice versa. And why would Paul want to develop a deep care and love for such people? Because he understood his goal was to have these people live lives worthy of God. In verse 11 to 12, Paul writes, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own son or his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of the gospel of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This should be our desire for everyone around us, that they would all live lives worthy of God. You know, as we think of the unbelievers that God has brought into our lives, do we seek and pray that this would be true for them, that they would live lives worthy of God? Because in the end, when they see God face to face, they will have to be reckoned with this truth. And at that time, I don't think they will be appreciative of you hearing, of hearing that you didn't share the gospel with them because you were afraid of offending them. You know, as Paul models in 1 Thessalonians, we have the courage to share in spite of opposition, and we be uncompromising in telling the truth, and we develop a deep care and affection for the lost. As I conclude, I'd just like you to watch a short video that I saw on the news a couple of days ago. Clifford, can you show the video? We end the week here with a prayer and how it was answered. Here's Steve Hartman on the road. And that purpose should be to serve the living God. Although no one knew it at the time, Minister Jerome Jones of the Springfield Baptist Church in Monticello, Georgia, recently went through a crisis of faith. I was getting ready to stop coming to church so much as, as I did. The minister? Yeah. I didn't see God doing anything for me. So given all that, this thing comes and basically lands in your lap. Lo and behold, here God shows up. Jerome says last month he was at his day job with the power company when a note came down from the heavens. It was attached to three balloons and it read, God, help me go to college. Please help me get everything I need to leave Wednesday. Signed, Mykia Curry. Mykia was about to start her freshman year at Albany State University in Albany, Georgia. No one in her family had ever gone to college, which is why she sent up that prayer, scared and worried. Scared. This is my first time being away from home and worried, like, as in financially. Your family has no money? Not really, no. So that's why I decided to come to college so my little brother won't have to go through the same thing I did. Mykia hopes to become a nurse to provide both an example and a better life for her brother, Malik. She got a student loan, but didn't have money for other necessities, like a fridge for her room or even a comforter for her bed. She needed help. Unfortunately, the wind blew her balloons to just about the poorest preacher in central Georgia. I don't have any money in my savings account. I I drained it from the taxes on my mom's house. I said, now you see this, right? Did you say that out loud? <laughs> I said it out loud because I, this, this is where I talk to God. We got away with each other. You may have a way with each other, but he doesn't understand your finances. No, no he showed that. He, evidently, he did. Yeah. When he found that balloon message, Jerome says he had a total of $125 to his name. 
How much did you spend on her? I spent all of it on her. He delivered a comforter and a mini fridge. And most importantly, a ton of much needed inspiration. It encourages me to keep going, knowing that prayers are answered. Likewise, Jerome also has renewed faith. A good reminder that sometimes the best way to get your prayers answered is to answer someone else's. Steve Hartman, on the road in Monticello, Georgia. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, he has someone right now that he is asking you to reach for his kingdom. And I pray that you will pray that you will know who these person, who this person or persons are. You know, you may feel like, you know, you're not up to it, you're in a spiritual rut, you know, things aren't well with you and God, so you can't do it. But, you know, like the pastor in the video, maybe what it takes for you to break out of your rut is for you to build into someone else. There are people all around you, unbelievers, dealing with different struggles, wrestling with different issues, and they're asking that if God is out there to show up. And God may not drop a message tied to balloons on your lap, you know, maybe he will. I don't know. But he will lead you to these people if you allow. Maybe you are the one to show up and let them know that there really is a God who deeply loves them and cares about their needs. Take the risk. Know that God is with you and you will find yourself blessed in the process. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the example that Paul sets for us in modeling evangelism. Lord, may we follow his example. May we have the courage that he exhibited, the uncompromising uh, nature that he shared the truth with, and the deep care and affection that he had for the loss. Lord, may it be true for us. For all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.